Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles again to Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. You remember that Paul writes to Titus to assist him in setting the Cretan church in order. It's a new church that needs order, and so Titus is sent there to appoint qualified elders. He is also there uh, to give important instruction with regard to their duty, the way they ought to live in light of what God has done for them, buying them with the blood of Jesus. And this book is a constant relationship between doctrine and duty, what is true and what to do. And what is true is what Christ has finished for us on the cross and what power that gives us to see lives change. And this morning, brothers and sisters, I believe that whatever it is in your life that's bothering you, that seems to be enslaving you, that's haunting you, can be ripped out of your life. You can be set free by the power of grace. It's the beauty of this passage, among other things that are beautiful about it. Doctrine and duty, what is true and then what we can do in light of what is true. You remember that our text before us in chapter 2 addresses the various groups in the church, the old, the young, workers, employees, leaders before that. All this instruction, all these duties for us, now we have the power for those duties. Hear now God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for giving me one more chance to preach the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great frustrations of the Christian life is no doubt hearing the preacher uh, give you a list of things you have to do. Uh, pointing to portions of Scripture out of context, always, where they just list the commands. Uh, This is what you've got to do, and I expect you all to do it this week. And you hear that, and you say to yourself, well, that's true, those are moral things, I wish society looked more like that, but I can't do it. And you go out frustrated, or maybe for a little you do well, because you were guilty, you felt guilty. And you moved a little bit, but oh, about by... Monday afternoon, you realize that it's just impossible to pull up your spiritual bootstraps and just do it on that basis alone. That's one of the most frustrating things for you, I know, and I'm telling you it's one of the most frustrating things for me too. To just take out of context of a letter that was written by an apostle just the commands with no connection to the power to fulfill those commands. Well, Titus has been a long litany of duties that we ought to do. And they have been rooted in the beginning passages that speak of Paul's laboring for the elect, those who are bought with the price of Christ's blood. So there's a foundation of grace there. Then we see these duties, and lest anyone get this messed up, he stops in these verses, which in the New Testament are in probably the top three passages that clearly show us what grace means in the life of a believer. 
Here he gives us important motivation, necessary motivation for actually living out the things that are taught. Now, I want you to consider for a moment the various ways that we can be motivated, or even the way I might motivate you, the people of God, to change, to see transformation. There are really three ways motivation happens. Now, it's not just me doing it. It's what we do in parenting. It's what we do in relationships. The first one is guilt. Make you feel guilty. If Jesus did all this for you, surely the least you could do is obey. I mean, come on. Look what he did for you. And you say to yourself, it's true. He did do all this for me. And you go out and for a little while you perform better because you feel guilty about your standing before God in light of what he's done for you. That's a very common motivator, and it works very effectively for a little while. Guilt motivation. We feel guilty if we don't do something. I might go over and help my elderly neighbor take out their garbage just because I feel bad. I feel guilty making them do it on their own. Guilt motivates, no doubt. The second motivator, or key motivation for what we do, is fear. Uh, We might be scared or fearful if we don't do something. Or if we do something a certain way, we might be physically harmed. Someone will get us or hurt us if we don't do it. So we're scared and we do something or we don't do something on that basis. Maybe it's not physical harm, it could be emotional harm. That person will no longer accept me if I don't do this. Those two motivations are prevalent in our lives as believers as well. We think that God functions that way. That he's somehow pleased by us feeling guilty about something and then doing it. Or that if we don't do something the way he commands, he will love us less or he will cut us off. Neither of these are even remotely close to what Christ purchased on the cross. These motivations do not work for the long haul and they are not God's intention for his children. The third motivation, which is brought forth by this passage, is the biblical motivation for changed lives, for transformed lives, lives that are set free. It's the motivation of gratitude. We are so overwhelmed with the unconditional kindness of God to us that we are compelled to respond with kindness in return, which means obedience, which means service to him. We serve and obey because we are so filled with gratitude for what he has done for us, what we don't deserve, that we literally bubble over with this gratitude into works that happen in our lives. We're not living out of guilt or responding in guilt. We're not living in fear that if we don't do it just right, he'll cut us off. Instead, we're just overwhelmed that he accepts us despite our sinfulness in his son, in our overwhelmedness with this gratitude makes us want to know how to serve him. Jerry Bridges says it so well. It is gratitude arising spontaneously from a heart filled with grace that motivates us to obey God and serve him wholeheartedly. Very simply, the free unmerited favor of God is what transforms our lives for the glory of God. I want you to look at verse 11 as we see the epiphany of grace, literally the shining forth or the manifestation of grace in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it mean when we see the appearance of grace here? Uh, The appearance of grace is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ himself. He has appeared, grace personified Christ. 
When Christ appeared on earth in a very real sense, we have the perfect representation of graciousness on the part of God the Father, divine grace. The appearance of grace does not mean that it was not present before, by no means. Grace has always been present in God's work of redemption. But now it appears, it's personified in Christ's coming, which we are familiar with, and so this original audience was also. Listen to what else Paul writes to, to second Tim, in 2 Timothy when he's writing about this concept of grace appearing. It's not that it wasn't before, it's just that now it's come to a manifested form in Christ himself as he comes. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God's dealing with his people has been gracious. His son coming incarnate now is the appearance spoken of here, the appearance of grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Before we go anywhere further, before we can understand how we are motivated by grace, let us be careful to define divine grace. There's a difference between grace and its common use that you and I will use it in. Oh, he or she was gracious, or I will show you grace as a person to another person. There's a difference between that kind of grace, which is simply unmerited favor, and divine grace, which involves something more profound, which is what will allow us to be transformed. Let me give you an illustration that's loosely borrowed from Jerry Bridges. Let's suppose I'm a homeless person living in your neighborhood in a park not far from your house. I go and knock on your door and ask for a meal. You give me a meal. Would you say that's grace? On the basic human level, that's grace. I didn't merit it. You gave me a meal because you were kind. That's not divine grace, though, because it goes much further. Let's suppose that I, the homeless person, had robbed your house the night before. You know I robbed your house. I show up on your doorstep the next day knocking, needing a meal. You know that I have offended you, yet you still give me that meal. Now we're getting closer to divine grace because it's not just the, the lack of merit on my part, it's the presence of demerit as well. Not only did I not deserve it, I also did something that should make you not give it to me. That's getting closer. But it's not divine grace yet. Divine grace would be more like this. You know Tony the homeless person stole from you the night before. You know I'm hungry in the park somewhere. I'm not sorry for what I did. You go out into the park and get me, bring me back to the house, and you feed me. That's divine grace. No merit, only demerit, and you go after me anyways. That's grace. Grace is not God did this, and now you choose him to activate it. That's not grace. That's works. Grace is all God, sovereignty of God applied to the individual believer by gripping you out of your disbelief and rebellion and placing you into a place of favor. Not just forgiving your sins, but now making you delightful to himself. All his work. That's the gospel. It's him doing it. Now our life is lived in response to that truth. That's what grace is. 
Divine grace is God's unmerited favor shown to one who deserves wrath and judgment. Jerry Bridges says in Transforming Grace, a wonderful book on this subject, we're not just undeserving, we're ill-deserving. Further, divine grace is God's favor towards us in the presence of our demerit because of Christ. You know, I would add one thing that does not transfer well in that analogy because it's human. The issue is there's two human beings who have a relationship. That is you and me, the homeless person, right? And you're a human being. And the the thing is, though, the law that I break is really the state's law. Uh, That doesn't affect you as a person so much other than you feel violated. Now, when God is violated, something else has to happen. It's not just that God goes out and gets us based on our lack of merit and in the presence of our demerit. He can't just overlook that, brothers and sisters. He cannot just say, forget about it. Because he's righteous, and so he has been personally violated. He is the law, and he has been offended by our sin. And so God the Father, unlike that human analogy, has to pour out wrath upon that unrighteousness. He has to. His justice would be violated. He would not be God if he let that stand. So according to the good pleasure of his own will, he decides to pour that wrath on his son instead. The picture of divine sovereign grace is all about the glory of God and salvation. It's all about his initiation. It's all about his choice to punish his son instead of me. If that does not compel you to want to live in response to this unmerited favor that God has given in in the presence of all the demerit I have, I don't have anything else. I know guilt doesn't work long, so I'm not going to even waste time trying to guilt you into it. I can't scare you too much, probably. But I do know it will change your life if you get a hold of and comprehend what divine grace really is. I'm sure of that. Look at the passage as well in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Please be clear and understand what this does not do is promote some kind of universalism. Whereby all human beings are redeemed. We know throughout scripture there are those who are not redeemed. Uh, But rather, this is speaking now in in newer terms to the hearers. The hearers have been used to uh, the witness of God coming forth from the Jewish nation. So now here they are, Greeks, uh, hearing this message coming primarily from Jewish apostles, saying now that this message, this gospel, is for all people of all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes and all tongues, and all social classes, which have just been spoken of earlier, the older, the younger, workers, slaves, come for all people, and it goes directly in line with what Paul says in other places, like in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and for the Greek also. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is the effect of God showing us undeserved favor? when what we deserve is wrath. The effect ought to be gratitude. Gratitude. So divine grace, properly understood, will compel gratitude. Uh, The Dutch theologian Burkhauer said it well. The essence of Christian theology, that's the doctrine, is grace. The essence of Christian ethics, that's how you live out the doctrine, is gratitude. What is true is grace. What to do is based on gratitude. Let's look at the passage and see how 
we can be transformed by grace. Verses 12 and 13 reveal the transforming power of grace because we are now compelled by gratitude. Verse 12, training us to renounce. What's doing the training? Grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, notice in verse 12 that grace, this concept of divine grace as I've just defined it, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness simply means to live without regard to God, irreverently. Uh, You live as though he's not there, he's not watching over, you can do whatever you want. That's ungodliness. And that can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. Worldly passions. It's a, passion's a word for desire. It means they're fed by the world system. And in Scripture, the world system is not usually given a positive light. It's Satan's system is the way it's often spoken of. It opposes God. It's a system set against God. But by grace, when you come to understand and comprehend what you've been bought by and what this means, now you have a, a, an ability to say no to the thing that you wouldn't have said no to before. If it's just based on guilt, like I'm not going to click on that internet site because I'll feel guilty, you'll get over that guilt pretty quick and you'll click on. But if something comes to your mind by the Holy Spirit of what Christ has done for you and that even if you click on, Jesus loves you. He's not going to throw you out. He will still love you. Wow, that stops me in a different way than I'm going to feel guilty after or someone's going to find out. It will transform you over time. I'm not saying it happens overnight. I'm not saying you win every battle. But I'm saying when you know that it is your acceptance before God is not conditioned upon your works that will set you free to obey. Gratitude that comes from the grace of God to us in Christ will compel us to resist ungodliness and worldly passions in a way that we had never thought possible. I read the story of Joseph uh, consistently because I love the whole story of God's providence there, but I'm always moved by what Joseph says after he is able to resist the temptation of his master's wife. He always, it, it sticks with me. He says, how could I do this thing and sin against God? It's not a, I don't believe it's a guilt situation for Joseph. It's that he recognizes the grace in his life because uh, some years before he was in the bottom of an empty cistern. He could have been killed by his brothers. There's no reason for him to still be alive, let alone uh, second in charge of this master's beautiful house and his household. In this grace that has filled Joseph's life compels him at that moment of trial to say, I can't do this. Not in light of what's been given to me. I can't. It's a big difference between looking both ways to see, is anyone going to see? And that's why I'm not going to do it, because I'll be guilty after. I'll get caught, and they'll kill me. There's a big difference between those two motivations. David fell, and God still loved him. Joseph could have fell. God would have still loved him. What a difference, though, when we're compelled with the fact that we have been made delightful to the Father by the Son. We are trained in grace, A constant comprehension of grace is a more long-lasting defense against sin than anything else. Now, before I go further and you say, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. Listen, let me just put it to you this way. If you just keep doing those things, presuming upon grace, you're probably not really a believer. 
The one who is a believer, is bought with a price, is at war over this. Okay, when they fall, they don't feel good about falling, and it's a constant battle and conviction because God loves you. He brings discipline. But the person who just uses this as license, that person has no comprehension of the gospel any more than the legalist does who thinks it's something they do that endears himself to God. So let no one think for a moment I'm promoting license. No, I'm just saying that recognize you have been bought, you are accepted, and now in light of that, you can obey. You can be secure. He's not going to drop you when you mess up. We need, I need, constant doses of grace. The means of grace we call preaching. So you hear this message on a regular basis. The sacraments represent this grace that God gives to us on a regular basis. The community of the people of grace give you encouragement and support when you need it. We need constant doses of grace. The reason why I am concerned when someone is not at church is not for legalistic reasons, like they should be at church, they must not be a good Christian. Where are they? No, it's, it pastorally concerns me because I know if they're not receiving steady doses of grace, their default mechanism will be works and they'll fail because they can't keep up on works. Or their default mechanism or their security will come from something else and they'll lose it more and more and they'll fail worse and worse and get farther and farther away. That's why it's so concerning when a brother or a sister isn't among us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That is, it trains us to say no, but it also trains us to say yes to something. And look what it says in the second part of verse 12. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives. You see these as being the opposite of what has just been mentioned. You probably have noticed if you've been with us throughout this series that this is the fourth time self-control has been impressed upon us. Now the first three times, leaders, older and younger people are all compelled and encouraged to live with self-control. That is not given over to a particular passion or pattern. But notice how this brings it all into view that the way we have self-control is by grace. It's grace that grants us self-control, not our working harder, our discipline at it. God employs our spirit, our, our will, in a way that disciplines it. He disciplines us. He disciplines us to do what we do by grace. Grace trains us to be these things. Self-controlled means sensible, not dominated by passions. Upright simply means just or honest or living with integrity. Grace helps us to do this. Godliness means the opposite of ungodliness, that is, we're reverent, that is, we do concern ourselves with what God's perspective is on it. Whatever the crowd's doing, ultimately, we care more about what God thinks about what we're doing. Being secure in your acceptance with God allows you to be honest, allows you to be obedient. Knowing that failure will not mean rejection, and I encourage you as you think about parenting this way, as we are in the thick of this, to be careful not to constantly teach our kids that everything's works-based. Clearly, they have to do certain things. But I don't want them to get the impression that their acceptance with me is totally based on them doing what I say. That I'll love them regardless of that. I will have to bring discipline because I do love them, but I don't love them because they're obedient children. I love them because they're my children. And then, from there, that perspective, even at an early age, they can learn what it means to live in response to grace shown rather than trying to earn something. But look at verse 13 where we see grace giving us hope and expectation for the future. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just before that, in verse 12, there's a reference to this present age. Present age simply means of the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We're still in it. But because of grace, because of this knowledge and surety of what God has provided for us in Christ, we wait for Christ. This is a blessed hope. It's blessed because we are certain of what's coming. Uh, There's no nail-biting or finger-crossing on the part of the Christian who looks ahead to the surety of Christ, fulfilling the final glory that he promises, waiting, it says in verse 13, for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a hope that has an effect on your lifestyle today. That is, the decisions you make in the most basic way thinks in terms of eternity. Even if you you just purchase something, you think to yourself, okay, how much of my life is this going to tie up? Because life's pretty short in all of eternity to think about or to glory in what it is that God is doing with you temporarily right here. It would change a lot of the things we do, a lot of things we commit to, a lot of things we invest in. We're looking for the, to the future, the glory of God coming when Jesus comes again. Look at also in verse 13, the second portion, we see grace giving us a proper focus. And the focus is not so much on what we get out of it, but on ultimately the glory of God. The second part of verse 13 says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that when he comes again, we'll receive our glorified bodies and we'll be perfected and the struggle won't be like it is anymore. However, the number one purpose for him coming is his glory. And part of how he's glorified is by transforming your lives, my life. And at his coming, to have us waiting and ready for him, there we have the great glory of God shown forth for all to see. Notice also that grace constantly points us to Christ. You really can't speak of divine grace apart from Jesus Christ. He is the personification of grace. He is the one who has done the purchasing for us, satisfied the Father's wrath, made us joint heirs together with him. We are adopted by the Father because of the Son. Grace constantly points to Christ. The last, por- the last words of verse 13, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice how Jesus is designated, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God. So God himself gives of himself to purchase our redemption and make us delightful to himself. This this is an investment beyond anything we can imagine. He didn't make some perfect human being who is not of his own essence and then make that person pay. He himself, the second person of the Trinity, gives himself for you. God gives himself for you that you might be rightly related to the Father, to be his child. Constantly pointing to Christ is grace. The transforming power of grace comes because we are compelled by gratitude. You may say to yourself, my life cannot be redeemed. You have no idea how bad it is. My behavior cannot be altered. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I'm beyond repair. And by grace, I tell you, brother, sister, friend, I tell you that by grace, God is not bound by your inability. God is not bound by your sin. He's not bound by your unrighteous past. Do you think he doesn't know this? 
Do you think when Jesus went to the cross, he did not understand the depths of sin that he would have to pay for? When the Father separated himself for the Son for those hours on the cross and he, all the wrath of God was poured on him, do you think Jesus ever thought this would not be powerful enough to cover your sin? Not for a moment. It's an insult to God to think whatever your past has, that God cannot take it away in Christ. This is what grace is. There's no one outside of the grip of God as his son's blood covers all our sins. Verse 14 and verse 15 give us an important necessity, I believe. The necessity of preaching this message, of teaching this message. Verse 14 says, who gave himself for us, that's Jesus our Savior, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Please notice something before I go any further. Do you see who does the work Jesus redeems us, that is, he buys us from our lawlessness, our disregard for God's rule, and he also purifies us. This is so crucially, critically important that we grasp. He didn't just save us, he's still cleaning us up now. He didn't just save us and say, I've done my part, now you go for it, you do it, follow these commands. That's not what it says. He says he redeems us and he purifies us. He doesn't say he redeems us from all lawlessness and waits and waits and waits for Tony to purify himself. He purifies for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see where the zealousness comes from good works because he's doing the work of saving and sanctifying. Sanctifies is the big word we use for becoming more and more like God or more and more dead unto sin and live unto God. Growing in grace is what sanctification means. Zealousness from good works comes from understanding what Christ has done for us, what it's purchased for us, and now in gratitude we live totally different lives. David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians about the time of Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, early early to mid-1700s. And many, many Native American people were coming to Christ And people asked him what was his method because at the same time there were other methods of evangelism being used. Listen to what Brainerd said. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified in my preaching. I found that once these people were gripped by the great evangelical meaning of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, I did not have to give them any instructions about changing their behavior. Preach Christ. Preach grace. And obedience to the law will follow. He is purifying for himself a people. Not a people are purifying themselves to become acceptable to God. God is doing the work from beginning to end. Our confession says so wonderfully that justification, that's the act of our being saved in, the, in more popular jargon, justification is an act of God's free grace. So it's God doing it, Right? wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepts us as righteous. He pardons our sins and he accepts us. He's not just saying, all right, I forgive you and go the other way. He's saying, I forgive you and come here, let me give you a hug. That's what justification is. He does this only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. When he looks upon us, he looks upon his son and he accepts us. Now, most evangelicals will say, yeah, that's basically what I believe. But this is where the full gospel is not often presented at least in modern times. It's not just that act of saving us that demands God's sovereign grace. It's also everything else after it 
that demands God's sovereign grace. That's why the follow-up question in the confession is what is sanctification? Justification, the moment we're saved. Sanctification is the life we live after that until we go to glory. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live under righteousness. Don't let this pass because it's profound. The same free grace that saves you is the same free grace that sanctifies you. You are always reliant upon grace. You are never reliant upon yourself. If this is the first time you ever heard it, you might even be mad at me. Because it bothers us that there's some level in which I'm not in control. And I can only say if you will continue to pray about this, read this, and study this, you'll repent of being mad at me at this time. Because I was sitting where you are, I'll never forget it, when the first teacher started saying these things, these doctrines of grace, as they were called. And I thought to myself, who is he to say that? I have done this. I'm even ashamed to say that now when I think of what it costs God to save me. It's the work of God's free grace through and through. There's only one method for transformation of lives. It's a comprehension of this. Please notice in final conclusion, verse 15, there will be continuous opposition to grace. We were just talking about this concept in a new member interview, and one of our elders said, this concept is slippery. He doesn't mean slippery like as in the slope, but we can hold it for a while, but then it squeezes out of our hand, and for a moment we're living in works, or we're living in something else, and we grab it again, and it's like being born again again. It's this concept that continually needs to come to us because there's a continuous opposition in our own hearts and in the world to this concept of grace. Because it gives God all the glory. In the flesh, in the world, and the devil don't want God to have his glory. So if I can just take a little bit of it by me choosing God or me actuating grace, then I get a little bit of the glory for myself. That's what my spirit wants. Declare these things, it says in verse 15, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So encourage, but also correct with all authority. There's a knowledge here in the part of Paul that they will be met with great opposition when they preach this message of grace. Let no one disregard you. In other words, keep preaching it. You'll have opposition, you'll have people that will appreciate it and grow, but whatever the case, don't let anyone not hear you. This is your calling. Don't let anyone disregard you. Make sure they hear it while they're in your presence. The free unmerited favor of God shown to us who deserve his wrath is what transforms our lives for the glory of God. John Newton understood this when he wrote just two verses. He wrote all the verses of Amazing Grace with great knowledge of this, but two of them stick out to me in a way that it never ceases to just stop me when I read it. The first verse, of course, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Justification. I was one, once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's him saving me. I get it. But a few verses later, don't ever lose what he says, because he got it. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, trained me, grace. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. It appeared, but it was an ongoing process. He properly understood that grace wasn't just the divine method for salvation, but it's also the divine method for transforming our lives now. In the technical sense, 
Grace is the method God uses to justify us and the method he uses to sanctify us. And then what is that great verse that ends the hymn? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We'll be in heaven by grace. We're justified by grace. We're sanctified by grace. Say with me, we're glorified by It's all grace and it's all God's glory. That's the point. No more guilt motivation, brothers and sisters. No more fear that God will love you less if you don't perform perfectly. Instead, please begin living in light of the fact that you have nothing to endear yourself to God and he could not love you any more right now than he already does. And when you mess up, he'll still love you that way. God sought you and bought you with his own son. This is divine grace, and the comprehension of it in this life, in your life, will be the very thing that transforms you. Let us pray. Lord, we are compelled, as we even think back to what we just sang, not what our hands have done. We praise you, the God of grace. We trust your truth and might. You call us yours. We call you ours. My God, my joy, my light. It is you who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because you love me and I live because you live. I pray that you would make a people here gathered, a people gripped, gripped by grace, sovereign grace. Pray this in Jesus' name.